Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the first of what I hope will be many podcasts to come, where we bring you conversations that are thoughtful, insightful, and actionable. For our very first conversation, I have a really special guest, Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Darius is one of the few investors that's been able to successfully navigate this year's stagflation, bear markets, and quantitative tightening, and runs one of the best macro research firms out there. So I'm really excited for today's conversation. Let's dive right in. Darius, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's such a pleasure to be here, man. Uh, I just found out I'm your inaugural guest, so I'm super honored. Uh, I think you do fantastic work as well, so uh, it's going to be a fun conversation. Appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely, Darius. We're we're doing systematic macro. We had to have you on as the first guest. <laughs> absolutely, man. We 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 are not. It's not all macro is systematic, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a tough thing to do, and I'm really excited to get into it. So, to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your firm, and you know what you guys do at Forty Two Macro. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll be brief because I'm sure uh, listeners will be <laughs> put to sleep by this. But uh, so again, as he mentioned, my name is Darius Dale. I'm the founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Uh, what we do at 42 Macro is uh, kind of quite simply, we try to help investors uh, avoid getting run over by the macro cycles, particularly the ones that matter most to markets. There's the liquidity cycle, the growth cycle, the inflation cycle, and the profit cycle. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is use uh, our, our ability to sort of predict outcomes in the economy through our regime segmentation process, use those outcomes, those predictions to forecast what our expectations are on changes in policy and ultimately relay those back to what we uh, believe is a very um, institutional and defensible portfolio construction strategy. Okay, awesome. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, so oh yeah. why don't we start with you know some concepts, mechanics? Um, What's the core framework that drives your process? Are there any, you know, theories, economic concepts, empirical findings that are really at the core of what you do? Talk that out for us a little bit. Yeah, I think if you boil down um, everything that it is that we do here, at forty-two macro, to its sort of core tenet, that core tenet is rate of change. Um, it's the belief that markets price in the, the, the sort of direction of travel and the pace of travel more so than they price in the sort of level or the state or the condition. Um, the condition is always changing in the markets effectively, that, 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 that dance that the markets do, that directional dance that you know, sometimes gets us paid, sometimes pisses us off, um, is a function of that rate of change process. Um, you know, sort of back really early in my, um, in my investing career, uh, you know, you know, I was at a firm and that, you know, at that time didn't really have much of a systematic process. And I sort of, you know, we were a lot more you know, similar to sort of how macro was, you know, used to be done, which is, I have a very sophisticated view on this one thing. And then, you know, I found a sophisticated view on this other thing, you know, sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say macro tourism because we knew what we were doing, but um, certainly wasn't systematic. But then very early on in that, in that, in that um, you know, kind of marriage, I stumbled upon, you know, sort of uh, Bridgewater's all, all weather portfolio white paper. And it was sort of, I fell in love with the concept, the concept of being able to sort of systematize what seemed to me at the time, certainly early in my career, uh, something that was very unsystematizable, which is which is macro risk management. And so ever since then, I've been a big, big believer in regime segmentation and harnessing the power of regime segmentation to sort of you know construct portfolios, you know predict dispersion within and across asset markets, you know use that regime segmentation to to sort of ultimately kind of um, you know create uh, positive outcomes in investor portfolios. 
Darius, you keep saying stuff where it's just loaded. This is fantastic. <laughs> um, so let, let me start with the, the first part that I think is extremely relevant to highlight. Um, you know, I've, I've also looked at Bridgewater's work over time, and I think that they've built a fantastic machine. Um, one of the key things that they focus on is the change in variables relative to what is discounted. Mm. And I find in my work that what typically tends to happen that the acceleration, so the change in change, so the second derivative as opposed mm. to the first derivative, tends to be extremely correlated with the surprises that happen over the economic mm. cycle. Um, have you seen this? How are you building that out in your process? Because most people always say that markets are forward-looking. It doesn't matter what they are doing right now, what economic variables are doing right now. But we're talking about you know, the second derivative change and how that relates to surprises or disappointments in data. Talk to me yeah, about that a bit. Great question, man. That, that is a loaded question. So um, a couple of things. So uh, I would tend to agree that markets are forward-looking. But with respect to um, relating markets back to the rate of change cycle, particularly the rate of change of growth, the rate of change of inflation, the rate of change of you know, things like monetary and fiscal policy, the lead time with which markets sort of price in those dynamics is usually not more than, let's call it, three months. It's somewhere somewhere between one and three months, at least according to our back tests. Um, we run a very sophisticated uh, asset market back test strategy uh, at 42 Macro. Um, that sort of looks at how asset markets have historically behaved uh, across what we call our grid regime cycles. Uh, grid is sh short for Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. Goldilocks is where growth is accelerating in second derivative terms um, and inflation is decelerating. Um, reflation is where both are accelerating. Uh, inflation is where growth is delta negative and, and inflation is still positive in second derivative terms. And then lastly, deflation uh, is when both, uh, both variables are negative. And so according to how you know, we've constructed our back test, which you know, sort of look at you know, all sorts of instruments and indices across the world through the lens of you know, annualized expected returns, percent positive ratio, volatility, and covariance. What we found that is when we start to play around with the sort of different leads and lags with markets in respect to those grid regime observations, you, know, you lose a lot of the sort of information when you get beyond three months. Uh, most of the information is is um, is actually sort of um, concentrated in the kind of two one to three month time horizon. Pick your pick your uh, asset class, and so uh, it's our belief that when it comes down to rate of change and resume segmentation, the market isn't as forward looking as a lot of people give it credit for. Now, it doesn't mean the market doesn't care about next twelve month earnings or you know where growth is going to be in a year, but the reality is the rate of change of of growth and inflation and policy along the way. Are going to uh, sort of sort of affect investors' views about those things that are further out. Right, and that kind of goes to the idea that markets are essentially discounting probabilities consist continuously until their certainties, and then they they essentially don't matter. Right. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So I want to bring us back because I really do want to talk about the regime segmentation. But I I would like to before we get there focus on why we look at these particular cycles and these particular variables, right? Um, because in a lot of uh, communities, it's considered that these economic concepts of growth, inflation, and liquidity, they're just, um, they're for armchair discussion, right? So why is it that you think that these are the variables that we need to focus on to be able to manage risk in a portfolio? 
Well, I don't know if I, I it's certainly not of any of my genius. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I, again, as I mentioned earlier in my career, I sort of stumbled upon, um, you know, Dalia's work and, uh, you know, he's pretty clear. And, 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 and by the way, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of people know who Ray Dalio is, but you know, Bridgewater is one of the largest and most successful hedge funds of all time. I think over their 35 year history, uh, they've compounded 500 basis points above the S&P over that 35 years. So, I mean, you have to tip your cap to uh, any, any manager who's able to do that for such a long period of time, which is why I hold Ray and his team in such high esteem and have certainly built my process around um, you know, some of those findings. Uh, but going back to so why why growth why inflation well those are you know based on work of Ray based on my own work based on uh, everyone's um, you know agreeing to agree on this those are the two principal components of asset class returns um, growth and inflation are um, pick your asset class you know for in bonds inflation will be more important and for things like equities and credit uh, growth will be more important and so you have to understand where those variables are going to go and rate of change terms into second derivative terms in order to kind of understand the likely path of asset markets. But also more importantly, you know, particularly in today's sort of policy fueled, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, if you will, kind of addicted policy, addiction to policy, if you will, uh, markets, you also need to understand the policy cycle as well. And the two things that influence policymakers the most are, are growth and inflation, particularly growth, if you think about it through the lens of the labor market for the Fed, and obviously inflation of uh, the various statistics therein. Right, this segues nicely into something that I think is also very important when you're looking at these cycles. Um, in your work, do you find that there is a typical sequence of events that occurs over the course of the economic cycle? And do you find that the interrelation between these variables, you know, like you were talking about the policy setting, what it means for growth, what it means for you know, discounts rates in the future, how do you think about those things over the course of the cycle? And do you, do you look for an archetype or is it a case-by-case -case basis? How are you thinking about this? Uh, so inherently, we're looking for archetypes uh, in the sense that you know, our models, the way we forecast growth and inflation are primarily autoaggressive systems. So inevitably, you know, we're sort of training those models on previous cycles. Um, do I expect certain outcomes from a frequency probability perspective? The answer is absolutely no. Um, every cycle is different. Every cycle is unique. Um, you know, it could be different durations in terms of the amount of time for the cycle to cycle. It could be different amplitudes um, in terms of the, the overall sort of a magnitude of the cycle and the change. And ultimately, you might have a different policy response. Um, you know, the, the Fed's response to 2% inflation in you know, 2006 could be very different than the Fed's response to 2% inflation in, you know, let's call it 2012 or something like that. Um, so it's a very, you know, you have to understand all this, how those different um, things are changing. But at the end of the day, what we want to do is be smart about, you know, kind of understanding, okay, what is the likely amplitude? You know, what's a, what's a, you know, what's a median amplitude? How far are we deviating from the median? You know, what's the median duration? How far are we deviating from the median? And most importantly, and this is also down to say this, most importantly, what is causing those deviations? And are they sustainable? Um, and so this is why it's very integral to our process to, to be very, very data dependent now casting every major economic statistic that matters, um, that has proven itself to be predictive for the growth cycle, proven itself to be predictive for the inflation cycle, because if you can predict the those cycles, again, you can predict the liquidity cycle, which has become very important to asset markets. Fantastic. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit more about the importance of now casting? Because we at Prometheus also, we run you know, all these now casting models and high frequency models. 
And I think it's really important for people to understand the importance of now costing, which is completely separate from forecasting, right? We're basically trying to get a gauge of where we're at at all times. And why don't you tell us a little bit of how you work that into your process? What are the main variables that you're looking to now cost? And, you know, what, what are the composites that you particularly like to look at or that you created in the house? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, we'll start by saying what, what, what's the dependent variable? Um, you know, for us, for in terms of our great regime process, uh, from an econometric standpoint, we're focused on uh, the OECD composite leading index time series as our proxy for growth. Um, some people like to use PMI, some people like to use GDP, um, you know, whatever you like to use, it's going to be generally very correlated, obviously. Um, you know, we use headline CPI for, for the uh, inflation uh, as, as a dependent variable for inflation. Again, some people like to use other statistics, you know, inflation indices, some people like to use PCE, obviously the Fed likes its core PCE, uh, but, you know, they're all some derivative of the same, same, same statistics. So uh, what we're trying to do what we're now casting is understanding, you know, how much is the, the, the sort of, how, how much are we likely to change from the base rate in this particular period in which we're observing uh, now cast data? Um, you know, for you know things like growth, there's a variety of economic statistics that you can look at, um, whether it be consumption on the consumption side of the economy, retail sales, real personal consumption expenditures, um, on the manufacturing side of the economy. Obviously, you have you know indices like ISM, you have uh, or PMIs rather, uh, you have industrial production, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, consumer confidence, business confidence, exports, imports, and then obviously the labor market statistics. And then there's a, a key a slew of high frequency variables as well. You know, things like railroad traffic or, you know, job postings, et cetera, et cetera, open table uh, reservations and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a whole world of data out there. There's a big world of data out there and you can certainly lose a lot of, you know, you can waste a lot of time, you know, building models that are sort of overfit or have too much data in there. But at the end of the day, you need to have, you know, kind of the basics covered when it comes to now casting growth, which is C plus I plus G um, and an X. Um, when it comes to inflation, there's a lot less, um, data that comes out on a leading basis to things like inflation. So it's a little bit harder to now cast from that perspective. But the, the, the good news about inflation is that it tends to be a little bit more autocorrelated. And so, um, you know, things like the commodity prices tend to be good leading indicators. Uh, you have various um, subcomponents of, of various um, uh, leading survey data, such as the uh, ISM prices paid indices or consumer confidence, uh, inflation expectations indices. Those things have been um, instructive as well. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, kind of leading the, the inflation, um, the, the timing of inflation. And that's another thing, you know, the sort of concept of the jagged edge uh, of high frequency data. You know, not all data comes out at the same time. You know, you know, when you're building models, you have to be cognizant of, okay, when does the data point come out in the month and in what sequence? Because you obviously can't use a variable that traditionally comes out after your uh, dependent variable as a, as a feature of an outcast, because it's not going to give you any information on any, um, on any T0. Right, that's all that all makes sense. So we're, we're, we're taking a very high frequency look at the world, which I think is extremely important for people to focus on, because it increases your sample size exponentially, right? Um, there used to be this classical old world where people would forecast GDP once a quarter. And you know, you might have a, you know, a few hundred pieces of data. And you could be in a very, very sub small subsample where you're correct about things but over the long history which is you know in the future you might be completely wrong and you might have trained your models completely wrong 
So I think that this approach of, you know, constantly having to reassess where you are in all of these economic variables just increases your potential of one, um, having systems that are appropriate and correct. You know, you're only going to be at, at best in this game if you're extraordinary, be right about 55 to 60% totally. of the time. You know, if you're exceptional, and I really want to impress upon this, if you are one of the best in the business, you will be right between 55 and 60% of the time. So you need a lot of data if you're going to do this in a systematic way to be able to validate what you're doing. Um, yeah. And having this high frequency approach really, really helps you do that. So well, the, I was going to yeah, say, at the, go at, the, um, at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is just you're being a humble Bayesian. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the frequentist probability earlier. You know, frequentist probability is a, is a decent starting point for kind of understanding how the world works. But at the end of the day, markets are extremely Bayesian. Markets are these dynamic ecosystems that are always learning, always evolving, always adapting, always, you know, taking out new strategies. You know, like that's what markets do. And so ultimately, when you're, when you're talking about now casting, whether it be now casting the economy or now casting whatever the market regime is vis-a-vis -vis the economy, what you're really trying to do at the end of the day is reduce your Bayes factor. And your Bayes factor is a ratio between your Bayesian posterior and your Bayesian prior. So effectively, for layman's terms, what do you think about the world after learning some information relative to what you thought about the world prior to the information? And a lot of investors, if you don't, if don't have a sophisticated now casting processes, you know, it's that, that jump from point A to point B or state A to state B can be very hard. It can be very long and arduous. And a lot of times investors get paralyzed when the information, when the game changes on them like that, you know, case in point this week. Um, investors may find it very difficult when, you know, the markets change really rapidly or the, the narrative changes really rapidly. And so one thing that now casting does is allows you to, as an investor to sort of, you know, take a step back and say, hey, okay, this is the new state of the world and you're doing it incrementally as opposed to all at once. And that helps you make better investment decisions. So we've got a good idea now of, you know, how you're thinking about the world. You know, you're constantly updating your probabilities of where you are which unbelievably, it's pretty hard to actually know where you are, forget where you're going to go in the future. Um, so yes. we're constantly trying to figure out where we are in this you know, economic cycle, right? Um, and we have a regime segmentation way of looking at the world. How do we take all of these variables that we're looking at in terms of economic data and how do we sort them into a portfolio? You know, How do we bridge that big kind of gap? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So as I mentioned, you know, the number one thing we do for investors um, is not predict what the economy is doing or even predict what the Fed might do or the you know, policymakers might do. The number one thing we do is help them construct thoughtful portfolios that are defensible uh, across regimes, across market cycles. Um, and, and ultimately, um, you know, at the end of the day, the goal is trying to help uh, investors make money. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have a very sophisticated backtesting system with respect to those grid regimes, again, through the lens of expected returns, percent positive ratios, volatility and covariance, which I believe and many other investors believe uh, are the building blocks for portfolio construction. Um, you need to understand your risk through the lens of volatility and, and, and covariance. You need to understand your reward, your expected reward relative and from the, we do that through the lens of uh, expected return and, and uh, percent positive ratios. And so in order to sort of construct a portfolio, we got to start with kind of the overarching thought process with which how we, you know, how we you know, select securities, which is, you know, we want to identify you know, what regime we're in, and we want to identify the likely regime we're likely to be, let's call it three to six months from now, based on our probabilities. Or we want to understand the range of probable outcomes, excuse me, um, over a rolling three to six month 
uh, for time horizon. As I mentioned earlier, markets tend not to move much, much, much further than kind of one or three months ahead in terms of the rate of change cycles for growth and inflation. And so understanding those regimes, and again, as, as I mentioned, those probabilities are updated, um, not only the, the near time, the, the near cast probabilities, but also the, the updated forecast as a function of the changing near cast. And so understanding that range of probable outcomes, we want to assign each of those four grid regimes an, an allocation that is consistent with the forecast for those probabilities um, 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 being achieved by in, in realizing economically uh, with the underlying assumption is that based on these probability, based on how the markets are, or, or based on how the markets have historically behaved in the regime, we expect them to behave this way. Therefore, we're gonna allocate XYZ um, to regime A, XYZ to regime B in accordance with those, with those evolving uh, probabilities. And in terms of security selection, so how do we get, that's sort of the broadest asset allocation thought process as it relates to which factors go into the portfolio, equity factors, credit factors, fixed income factors, which currencies, commodities, et cetera. Um, those are a function of, again, of a more um, even rigorous process whereby you know, we have a, a compendium of, 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 of sub-regime backtests that are sort of tagged based on various characteristics of growth, inflation, and policy. For example, um, you know, the speed of the change in growth. Is growth not only just going up or down, but is it going up or down a lot or a little? You know, same with inflation. Uh, is the Fed hiking interest rates? Is it cutting interest rates? Is the Fed expanding its balance sheet? Is the fiscal policy expanding its balance sheet? Um, things like that. So all those different um, sub-regime backtests get filtered into what we call our, our, our grid asset market backtest overlay. And ultimately, you know, we help investors visualize the, the risk reward uh, through what we call our risk reward scatter plots. And so those scatter plots formulate the basis of our effectively our, our buy sell list. And that's where I'm usually picking in, picking exposures to sort of fill out those, those overarching grid probabilities in the, uh, in the portfolio construction. So for our listeners, um... Could you highlight a little bit more, obviously without giving away anything proprietary, how do you think about regime recognition? Because, you know, we're, we're talking about regime probabilities today and then, you know, probably over a relatively short forecast horizon. So how are you thinking about what, what is it that your systems are looking for to say, hey, that, you know, we're in an accelerating real growth environment or we're in a stagflationary environment? How do they kind of make sense of the world? Yeah, so it's it's two two questions. A great question, by the way, because that is a very underrated regime recognition is a very underrated aspect of what we do, right? It's probably uh, one of the most important things that people don't talk about. To, well, yeah, I mean, when I first started at this, I don't, you know, we didn't really have any regime recognition. You know, like uh, just going back to my prior shop, you know, I, I uh, built a, a fairly sophisticated process over there. Um, you know, and and you know, the, this concept of regime recognition was sort of it was it was it was an afterthought at the time. Um, it was more okay. We this is the regime we think we're going in. We're going to invest accordingly, and and obviously some, you know there was some, some success and there's some failures. But ultimately, I think in today's modern world, you certainly need a lot more regime recognition because a the game is more sophisticated than it's ever been, and its move game is moving faster in terms of the catalysts uh, coming to the market and getting priced in. So it's um you definitely need to understand what regime you're in um, in order to sort of you know again shrink that base factor that help you make better investment decisions. Um, so our regime recognition process is sort of twofold. One, from the perspective of the bottom-up economy, um, which is you know, how we identify what regime we're in, is you looking at the trailing three-month deltas, again, on our dependent variables, which is um, the OECD composite leading index time series for growth and line CPI year-over-year year for uh, inflation. And so um, if the trailing three-month delta for either of those um, regimes is positive, 
you know, you're going to be, you know, on the, in the positive side of the axis in the uh, degree regime chart and obviously negative, um, the, the converse is true for negative. And so it's easy to understand what regime you're in in hindsight. The hard part, obviously, is understanding what regime you're in today and more importantly, what regime you're going to be in, you know, three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now. And so that's where our forecasting process comes in, which gets, which is an adjunct to our now casting process. It's a separate process, but um, they're all sort of running in conjunction, which allows us to kind of have a rolling, you know, 12 month projection series, uh, if you will, a horizon of, of estimates and probabilities really um, that is constantly being sort of shocked by incremental data. Um, that's so that's that's from the bottom up standpoint. That's what the economy is doing. What the markets are doing, which is generally what the economy is doing with maybe a one to three month uh, lead um, with respect to the economy. You know, we run what we call our global macro risk matrix. Um, this is a sort of um, kind of a market observation system, if you will, that's looking at 42 different uh, asset market indicators across 12 different asset classes through the lens of what we call our volatility adjusted momentum signal. So it's just, I mean, it's, it is what it sounds like. It's momentum, but it's uh, adjusting for uh, for changes in volatility parameters. So, um, you know, with those based on how those 42 separate indicators have historically traded in the regimes, we we know if a, if a security or if an exposure in the in the matrix is bullish or bearish, it's pricing in one or two of those four regimes. And conversely, if you know, and the converse is true uh, across the board. So and any, every day, every single day, you know, we, we wake up and we refresh the model. And over at the end of the day, the one regime or multiple regimes is, is sort of the modal outcome from the perspective of asset markets, again, through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signaling process. So um, this will keep us honest. It helps us keep us honest. Or more importantly, it helps us spot, you know, kind of awkward moments in the market that are where you have a regime being priced in the market that is a low probability event, um, you know, of, have a low chance of occurring over the next three to six months, like we are today, for instance. Right now, our, our global macro risk matrix is currently signaling a low probability or sort of low conviction reflation regime, uh, which is very anomalous with respect to um, the, the sort of bottom up economic outlook. You know, we're still in what we call inflation, that's growth slowing and inflation accelerating with a likely transition to deflation uh, by September. That's growth decelerating, inflation decelerating. And so you, you look at the markets that are pricing in reflation right now, it's suggesting that um, this is something that may not be sustainable. Darius, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the way you've constructed your system. I think it's extremely important um, that people get a sense of how comprehensive this approach is. And I think that there's there's a there's a there's a delicate balance that needs to be managed between, you know, I as a systematic, you know, investor. I believe that there's a delicate balance that needs to be managed between being completely reliant on a system and completely reliant on your discretion. The process you've outlined basically is you as an individual going out and taking your discretionary views on how certain things work and testing them over time and putting them together in the structure. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people are unable to either because of their skill set, time, or you know because of job constraints are unable to, you know, create a risk management process like this. But at the same time, you know, we as more quantitative investors are often at fault of relying too much on our machine. So how do you find, how do you strike the balance personally? And, you know, at 42 macro between having a discretionary approach and having a quantitative approach and blending those two together to having the best kind of mix of both. It's uh, by far the hardest part of the job. I mean, you, you know, this is as Absolutely. well as I do. It's by far the hardest part of the job because there are 
there are times where you know you you get signals from the market, you get signals from policymakers that would tend to suggest that hey, what you have on the page in terms of regime probability might get overwhelmed. Um, I think of you know sort of um, you know um, March of 2020, for instance. You know the sort of Fed brought out the alphabet soup of uh, of liquidity tools and 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 put a floor in markets at a time where it didn't make a lot of sense for markets to bottom right. Um, eventually, it turned out to make a lot of sense because you know we reopened the economy and things of that nature. But I'm not sure that the markets were were pricing that in in, in, in late March, early April. I think they were pricing in you know the alphabet soup of, uh, of liquidity. <laughs> uh, so there are times like that where, and even Q4 uh, or Q1 of 2019, go back to January 4th of 2019, where Powell made a seemingly innocuous comment about you know slowing the pace of rate hikes, um, and ultimately that catalyzed what is one of the biggest you know kind of you know rallies we've seen in in, in recent decades. Um, throughout that year. So, uh, you know, that, you know, there's, there are times where, you know, the policy changes in policy can have an outsized influence over asset markets that may be incongruent with what the regime probability suggests as the optimal portfolio. And so there are times where you need to understand as in a human that, hey, you do need to have a human being driving the, driving the ship. Now, the converse is, if you have a human being driving the ship too much, and you're constantly sort of overriding the probabilities, then you're putting yourself in an adverse chance. So um, I don't know if there is a right answer to your question. I, if there is, I certainly don't have it yet. I think there are times to be a human. And I think there are times to be a robot. Uh, if there's a key takeaway from our interview today, that's probably it. I think there's it's a constant endeavor of finding the correct balance um, because, and this is, uh, I think this is a, an, a good segue into the the notion of machine learning in in finance and in macro finance where where if you are completely machine dependent and you have a greater existence of more and more machines trading a certain phenomena the phenomena tends to tends to disappear mm-hmm. as a result the value you, factor <laughs> <laughs> absolutely is one of so many and uh, i can i can point to the you know there's so many different uh, trend factors that are just you know completely got destroyed and having a mix of both, you know, human controlling where we're going, and at the same time, a machine allowing you to calibrate kind of how fast we need to get there, is is really really important for you know most investors. And I think that that's really the value add that you know a firm like yours brings. You you guys spend the time saying, hey, what are the the sustainable relationships that we can bet on, and how do we systematize that and you know put it into views. Darius, I could talk your ear off about you know mechanics and how to design all this stuff all day and i'm really enjoying this but i'm sure people really want to know what's happening in markets right now so i'm going to use this as a jumping off point um why don't you you know you've laid out this rich framework of how you look at things and i appreciate that so why don't we talk about how the world has evolved over the last 12 months through these lenses of yours yeah, no, great question. Great question. And likewise, my friend, uh, you and I can literally go, go you and I would have a, a great uh, uh, happy hour. Oh, yeah. Back and forth oh, yeah. We, we, we're going to do that often. And we will, my friend. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, just kind of thinking about let's let's set the stage for where we've come from and then where we might be headed, I think, as a secondary discussion. So, uh, you know, we've come from a world where in the in the post pandemic era, you know, it's been a very unusual cycle. It's, very, it's the first recession we've ever had where income went up, you know, and, and not only did it go up, it went up a, a tremendous amount. And so, um, not, you know, that coupled with the fact that we sort of changed the way society works in terms of work from home, 
you know, people moving to the suburbs, et cetera, to great resignation. There's a lot of kind of weird changes that all happen in a very short period of time. And it's created a lot of sort of um, bubble activity in certain sectors in the economy and even in the economy broadly. And it's created some depressions in other sectors, if you think about commercial real estate, for instance. Um, you know, so that, that's sort of the kind of the nature of this, 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 this setup that we've had. And, you know, from a regime segmentation perspective, we've been in what we call inflation for the past, let's call it 12 months. Um, that's where growth has been trending lower in leading indicators terms. Um, inflation has been trending higher, persistently surprising, uh, not only my models, but a lot of economists' uh, models, economists' consensus uh, models to the upside, particularly in this most recent kind of final push higher. Um, I think we all sort of thought inflation would peak, you know, maybe in early Q1 of this year, but it clearly turned out not to be the case. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the, the, the persistence of inflation, if you will, um, at least from a modeling standpoint, has been something that has caused a lot of forecast error. And so here we are today in a situation where growth is very much on its heels. I mean, we just got the Q2 GDP report yesterday, technical recessions in the cards, um, not quite an actual recession. We're not seeing broad-based declines across the economy, um, but we certainly are seeing a grinding to a halt in real final sales, you know, real final sales with 0% um, um, in the second quarter. So you know, we have an economy that's basically on its knees um, with the same time inflation is, is at the highs. It's at 40-year highs, pick your metric, all-time highs if you're looking at it on a median basis across the things in the CPI, um, CPI basket. And so um, enter uh, policymakers. Uh, one, you have a, a White House that is uh, just, if only, if only because of the, the decline in, 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 in the approval rating, is hell-bent on doing something about inflation. To, to you, you go from you know, potentially considering removal of Chinese tariffs, to you know, what is many people believe is a very ill-advised um, depletion of the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, you have the Treasury Department, which is an adjunct of the White House, uh, contributing to the inflation fight as well uh, by sort of starving the market of, of the T-bills, the Treasury bills it needs to rehypothecate and create credit um, in, the, in, the, in the shadow banking sector. And then ultimately the main event, the, the, the key uh, uh, sort of entity, the institution in charge of fighting inflation uh, is the Federal Reserve. Um, the Jay Powell Federal Reserve has proven itself to be fairly hawkish, um, certainly um, in terms of the speed of the change in, in, poli in the policy rate and the projected speed of the change in the balance sheet in terms of quantitative tightening, $95 billion a month starting um, in September um, of, of roll off. You know, this is a Federal Reserve that appears, uh, at least at face value, committed uh, to doing something about that inflation, even at the expense of growth. Um, in fact, Powell, in his most recent FOMC, um, you know, press conference was, was last Wednesday, Wednesday, 27th of July, it effectively say, hey, look, we're comfortable, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, he said a lot of things, but, you know, in, in, name, in, in, in so many words, said he was comfortable with something that might look like a recession or in order to get inflation under control, because again, he reiterated from the same thing, he reiterated one of the things he said in the June press conference, which is their maximum employment mandate, which is the other side of the mandate that would prevent them from hiking, is in fact conditional on price stability, on getting inflation back under control. And so there, here we are today um, on Friday, uh, June 29th, markets interpreted his press conference actually quite bullishly because of one thing he said about, you know, one, slowing the speed of, of rate increases, but two, most importantly, the Fed is now at neutral and it's going to start to fill around from a data dependency perspective in order to gauge and guide its, um, guide its uh, policy rate changes from here. Um, I don't think the market thinks the neutral rate is at 2.5%. I 
Otherwise, we wouldn't see such an aggressive rally in, in equities and compression of risk premium across risk assets. And so um, I think we might be heading into a time whereby the markets start to chest and challenge uh, the Fed's expectation that 2.5% is a neutral policy rate. And ultimately, at the end of this process, um, we might have an FOMC uh, that is coming out and revising its expectations higher of that neutral rate, which would ultimately send um, you know, markets uh, incremental signals to, to tighten policy further. So the Fed's reaction function or future reaction function is is primarily driven by the, the, the dual mandate, right? So how much pain are they willing to take on the employment front relative to how much inflation we're experiencing? Um, and you touched on this earlier. So we are currently in an environment where, you know, inflation seems to have transposed itself higher, right? There's, there's a higher stable rate of inflation and a whole bunch of factors driving it. So before we get in, and we will get into the employment component, obviously. So how do you see uh, inflation evolving relative to what, you know, policy expectations are and maybe consensus expectations? And I know you've done some really good work on breaking down the components of inflation. So, you know, the, the secular trend in, in inflation versus the cyclical and the idiosyncratic. And why don't you talk to us a little bit about what each of those components are doing and why, how that informs your outlook and then what that dovetails into what the Fed is likely to do? Yeah, great question. So there's sort of two questions, really, like the cyclical outlook for inflation relative to the secular outlook for inflation. So I'll start with the cyclical. Uh, our model uh, has inflation, you know, like many others, um, peaking in June, but with a gradual decay um, over the next 12 months, um, and really until you get into Q1 of next year, uh, or sorry, Q2 of next year with a, the much more accelerated decline by then. Um, you know, a couple things that are sort of working against the, the, um, the projected deceleration that many economists, you know, view for inflation, you still have a, a pretty aggressive um, rise in shelter uh, inflation that's likely ahead of us, um, just as a function of the lag price changes in, in shelter CPI. Um, you have things like medical consumption that are starting to uh, pick up again. But the most important part of inflation, in my opinion, um, is this sort of return, this resurgence of core inflation pressures. Um, you're seeing this median CPI at an all-time high on a three-month annualized basis, sticky CPI at a 40-year high on a three-month annualized basis. And those two things are telling you that we have much more sort of stereotypical academic monetary policy inflation pressures in the system. And those pressures are coming from a labor market that is still very, 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 very tight. Um, you know, a few statistics I'll throw out at the listeners for, um, in terms of gauging that. Um, you know, you look at the ratio of job openings to total unemployed workers, that's at 1.9. That compares to a pre-COVID trend of 0.9, so more than double. Uh, you look at uh, the private sector quits rate uh, coming off an all-time high roughly back in the fall of 3.3. We're now 3.1 now, uh, but that's still well north of the pre-COVID trend of 2.4%. And then lastly, you have uh, something like the Employment Cost Index, which we just got out today uh, here on Friday, June, July 27th, um, came in at 5.1% year over year. Uh, that's the fastest rate of, of, of wage and compensation inflation we've ever seen in the time series. It goes back to 2000. Um, so, and that compares to pre-COVID trend of somewhere around two and a half percent, so more than double. Um, so you look at the labor market through some of these, you know, more kind of wonkier statistics, it's telling you that the Fed has a, has a, has a wage problem, a potential wage price spiral on their hands. Now, I'm not a big believer in the Phillips curve. I think the Phillips curve died probably when whoever this economist, Philip, uh, probably did, unfortunately. <laughs> um, may he rest in peace. 
but you know, there's a lot of academic, um, you know, PhD economists at the Fed that, for whatever reason, um, are you know inclined to believe that. So I think the Fed is aware uh, that of these wage pressures um, coming through the economy, uh, and they're likely to do something about it, if only because, again, from a momentum standpoint. A momentum standpoint, you look at the growth rate of private payrolls were around three and a half, three point four percent on a three-month annualized basis. You know that's double than where, where we were in the pre-COVID trend. And then you look at aggregate labor income, which sort of you know productizes um, you know the, the growth in private payrolls, growth in uh, wages, and the growth in hours worked. And at eight percent, you know we're effectively a double relative to that pre-COVID trend. So the pace of income growth in this economy, while not keeping up with inflation is still running at a level that is consistent with inflation being significantly higher uh, than, the, than the Fed's 2% mandate. And I think the Fed knows this. I'm not sure the market cares about this this week, but ultimately the Fed is the market's going to have to care about that because the Fed's going to have to remind the markets to care about that. That's the cyclical side of inflation. So on the structural side of inflation, uh, you alluded to our secular inflation model, which we look at, uh, which we use to sort of you know, project the longer term um, sort of um, you know, stationary mean of, of inflation. Um, you know, it's our belief that we have entered into a new regime of inflation, uh, one that is characterized by a higher stationary mean and perhaps more sort of um, cyclicality in terms of the time series, um, you know, you know, just, you know, which is generally what you would expect if you're in a higher inflation environment, uh, both on inflation and, and, and growth as well. Um, you tend to have more cyclicality and growth with a higher inflation regime as well. Um, and so this, this model is a dynamic factor model uh, which we're using to, um, to sort of, um, I would say, now cast what inflation is likely to sort of trend at uh, in the in this in this in this decade throughout the 2020s. Um, there's, there's several factors, critical factors in the in the model um, that are sort of shocking it in both directions. You know, right now, if you look at demographics, and again, it's a dynamic factor model that's relating, interpolating the change in the factor back upon the change, uh, the projected change in inflation. Um, and you look at something like demographics, it's a it's a big drag actually on on core inflation dynamics or something like globalization, the decline in globalization, which we're using uh, the change in the imports as a percent of GDP, uh, imports of goods and services as a percent of GDP, that change uh, and, and, and that factor um, is contributing to a decent amount of inflation, projected inflation over this decade, as is the Fed's reaction function, as is public debt, uh, as is GDP, as our wages. Um, so there's a lot of factors shocking the inflation model higher and lower, uh, not the least of which on the lower side, um, the money velocity, Monopsony um, power, which we um, use as, a, as, a, as a, which we use the sort of market cap between uh, the S and P 100 index as the 100 largest companies relative to the market cap of the S and P 100 as a proxy for monopsony power, and you know the congregation of power in, in you know in industries you know you know to one or a handful of, of companies. So you know those things tend to depress wages, for instance. So um, there's a lot of fact things shocking the model, and at the end of the day, what the model is spinning out is core PCE is likely to trend at a rate that's 50 to 100 basis points higher in the 2020s relative to the prior decade. Now I'll say that again, core PCE is likely to trend at a rate that's 50 to 100 basis points higher than it trended in the prior decade. Now that has all sorts of implications for policy, not the least of which at some point, the markets are gonna force the Fed to choose between the economy and asset markets or the, you know, or, or, you know, the bond market really. Um, is the Fed going to allow the bond market to sort of you know price in just structurally higher inflation and allow the economy and asset markets to function you know uh, to function or is the fed going to constantly try to keep maintain its two percent inflation target um, despite all these pressures for you know core pc to go higher and if so if they try to maintain that 
And obviously the economy and asset markets are going to suffer for a persistent period of time, uh, you know, on a trending basis. So um, I think that's the big, big question of this decade is whether or not the Fed is going to revise its inflation uh, target higher. Uh, I don't think they're going to do that anytime soon, but perhaps um, at the next cycle. Darius, so just to recap, your models are essentially saying that, yes, we're going to have some amount of disinflation, you know, so we'll come off the highs. But what we're going to settle at is a level of inflation where you might be close to, you know, 25% to 50% higher than the level we're used to. And the Fed has to make a choice about whether it's going to essentially welch on its 2% long-term inflation target. How do you think that this plays out for markets? And I know that you operate on multiple durations. So why don't we take into context first the longer term, since we've talked about sort of a longer term picture for the Fed and the Fed operates on a longer time horizon than we manage risk. Mm -hmm. um, so how are we looking at this possibly higher inflation environment in terms of asset allocation on maybe a 12 to 18 month basis, then a six month and a three month? How are you thinking about those things? Yeah, great question, man. Phenomenal question. And I love the distinction between uh, managing your risk and having views. I think a lot of investors have, you know, I, I really views. like to say um, that investment strategy happens over months. Uh, risk management happens in moments. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Now, I would I would even extend that to, to years. I mean, if you know, people, I, you know, there's a lot of really thoughtful investors with, you know, longer term views that are very defensible, data driven. Um, but at the end of the day, risk management does not happen over that time frame. Yes. And the market is not pricing in. Again, we've talked about this earlier, but the market doesn't price in what you think is going to happen next year today. You know, maybe in a forward market it would, uh, but they, even then the forwards are only informed by the data that we have today and they right. were likely to absorb. But anyway, sorry, I mean, uh, di di no, but you know, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of using forwards and futures markets to necessarily, because in, in the way we do things at Prometheus, prices are just positions, mm -hmm. right? So um, you can get glean some information from the structure of forwards markets and the rate of change mm -hmm. of those, those different markets. But in terms of the level and what they're quote unquote forecasting, there's very little information available for investors to actually, actually use. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, they're, they're, I'm not even sure they're forecasting anything. They're, they're, they're just telling you what the same guy who trades the, 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 the current product is trading is believes the, the, the forward product to be, right? Exactly. They're all derivatives of, of, of you know, the spot price. And so I, I agree with you. I, th I, I think investors make a big, um, uh, one big mistake a lot of investors make is sort of anchoring on things like break-evens or inflation swap rates as a predictor or you know, what the market thinks inflation is. No, that's what, not what the market thinks inflation will be next, next year or five years from now, 10 years from now. It's what the market thinks today inflation will be five, 10 years now. And that's a very different distinction, right? And the market changes its mind every five minutes. So totally. um, it, uh, it's not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So going back to, uh, to, to your question on, on inflation. So uh, from the longest term time horizon, um, I think we, we are likely to be uh, in something that looks like a, a bond bear market now. Again, when you say that, that's a very loaded statement, right? You know, that means, oh, bonds are going to go down and it's going to be a straight line down for a decade. And no, the answer is absolutely, absolutely not. Um, but one of the things I'm, I'm anchoring on is that because the time series of inflation likely bottomed out in, in 2020 and is likely to make higher lows and, and higher highs from that point in time, 
It's also very likely, just as a function of bond pricing, you know, inflation expectations being a critical component of that, that bond yields make higher lows and higher highs um, across cycles, inflation and growth cycles uh, over the next decade. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the mean 10 year is going to be five or six percent. You know, it could go back to a mean 10 year of three percent. But, you know, from a previous mean of one and a half, you know, over the last, let's call it, you know, three or four years or something like that. So that is a that's a that's a big deal. Um, you know, so I think that's that's something that's got to get um worked into in, in asset markets and and ultimately this is going back to the question of whether or not the fed is going to revise its inflation target because again i think that is the critical question of this decade um, not the least of which there's a lot of populism built into the system from decades of inequality um you know a labor market that is appears to be structurally broken it's very tight but it's very structurally broken in the sense that there's not a lot of labor mobility um you know there's not you know you know people if you're if you're a low-end worker you tend to stay a low-end worker um in that regard um, and so there's a lot of populism in our system that's likely to necessitate uh, an incremental fiscal policy response relative to previous decades. And so there's inflation coming from that uh, avenue as well. And so ultimately, the Fed is, is, is going to be challenged by asset markets to, to acquiesce to that incremental fiscal policy. Um, you know, the Fed is not buying bonds. We know foreign central banks and, and foreign capital allocators don't want our money. If you look at the share of, of um of, of, of treasuries and, and, and FX reserves, the share of dollars and FX reserves, or you know the, the 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 total amount of FX reserves relative to the total amount of treasuries, they're not keeping pace with the pace of our growth of our the growth of our debt. And so we are going to need either the private sector to increasingly step up to that 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 higher fiscal uh, policy burden, or we're going to need the Fed to expand its balance sheet uh, or change regulatory policy for for the banks that it regulates to to expand their balance sheet to sort of meet that higher um, that, that higher debt burden uh, that we have projected uh, associated that's causing a lot of that incremental inflation. So um, that to me is the big challenge of the time and how the Fed chooses to deal with that is going to be very instructive for asset markets. They can do it in a way that destroys the bond market by saying, yes, inflation target is now 3% and reflates at equities and reflates all risk assets to, to the moon. Or they can do it in a way that's, or they can just say, no, no, we're going to maintain this 2% inflation target because that's what we've been trained to do. That's the best possible outcome. And as a function of that, we're going to starve the economy and asset markets of capital for an extended period of time. Because again, you're going to have the federal government crowding out the private sector in the US, this current account deficit US economy at a time where the rest of the world doesn't necessarily want to hold dollars, certainly not at the pace with which we're creating them. Um, so that's the longest term time horizon. Kind of the medium term time horizon, let's call it six to 12 months. Um, I do believe that inflation is headed lower. Um, it's going to head lower, unfortunately, or at least according to our models, unfortunately, at a, at a pace that's not, you know, necessarily consistent with this market view, this developing market view that the Fed is very close to a pivot uh, in, in, in its policy tightening regime. Um, so that that has implications because it ultimately means the Fed is likely to keep its foot pressed on the brake for longer than it otherwise should, particularly for an economy that is flirting with an actual recession, um, hashtag actual recession, which again, I define as very different than a real recession or than a technical recession, which is just a couple of quarters of, of negative prints. So um, that to me is sort of the key question. It's not even a question in our opinion. I, I think it's become a question to market participants. Hey, this Fed looks like it's easing up and they're putting in, I think investors, um, you know, certainly those who've been burned either year to date or were certainly burned by that 2019 squeeze are putting on the, the, the sort of Q418 pivot playbook. And um, ultimately I think that that, that, that view is, is likely to be proven wrong it's very likely we retest the lows, maybe even make new lows uh, in risk assets as a function of this this, this sort of um, bifurcation between the market's expectation 
of what the Fed's likely to do heading into recession to what the Fed is ultimately likely to do, which is, in our opinion, make the recession worse than it otherwise would be. And then just from a short-term time horizon, I think the next month or so is very critical. Um, how the market responds to incremental uh, news that inflation is likely to be stickier for longer um, is, is going to be very critical to watch. Um, what could prove me very wrong is if we start to get inflation data points that are above consensus, but coming down and the market starts to interpret that as positive anyway, um, then that'll make me very wrong. It'll tell me that the market is ready to move on from policy pricing and policy tightening and that ultimately the Fed might be uh, ready to move on as well. So we'll have our eyes glued. Uh, we get a couple of CPI prints uh, between now and the next Fed meeting, I want to say on September 21st, um, we get a couple of jobs reports. Um, it's very unlikely that we see a breakdown in, in the labor market uh, quickly enough to cause the Fed to pivot uh, in September or even in November. I mean, the jobs, the labor market is historically the most lagging uh, aspect of the economy, um, followed only by inflation. So ultimately, the Fed is looking at two of the more lagging indicators within the economy to guide its policy regime. And ultimately, that likely means, um, to summarize, uh, that the Fed is going to maintain tighter policy than it otherwise should heading into a recession. Darius, the view you've laid out over the next 18 months, I think that it's particularly important for asset allocators and investors to understand, because if we are indeed in this heightened inflation environment, especially where you know markets are discounting a reversion, um, we have a very different setup with stock bond correlations. Oh, yeah. So how are you thinking about these views on inflation? So I understand the view that over maybe say the next six months, you're, you're more constructive on duration and treasuries, but we could likely be in, you know, maybe a five-year period or, in, you know, a longer term period where we see very different treasury returns from what we're used to. How are you preparing, you know, your subscribers and, you know, clients that you're working with for this complete shift in how stock bond correlations have typically worked over the last 40 years relative to today? And how are you thinking through what will make you change your allocation or your, are you buying inflation hedges? How are you, you know, creating your portfolio construction in this context? Yeah, absolutely. So our portfolio construction will never really deviate much from the expected grid regime probabilities on a rolling three to six month basis. Um, I think that keeps us honest. That keeps us, um, you know, from suffering, you know, adverse drawdowns from having positions on that are too far out from a catalyst perspective. Um, so that that that's helpful. Um, but one thing I do believe, just just from an asset allocation perspective broadly, because again, a lot of folks who are going to be listening to this podcast, you know, maybe running different types of. Um, you know, more vanilla strategy, 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, I don't know, pick your, pick your ratio. You know, it's, it's pretty clear to me that, you know, as long as we're in a regime where inflation is higher than the prior regime, you're going to have either lower real returns in your, 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 your fixed income holdings, or if we're in an re inflation regime, um, and then this is empirical, not necessarily theoretical, but empirically, when inflation is trending at a rate that's 5% or more, you typically have a positive covariance between stocks and bonds. Um, so that means stocks and bonds are going up together and down together, as we have seen throughout the year to date. Um, so I don't believe that we're going to stick in a regime that inflation um, is going to be persistently a north of 5%. So I do believe that inverse covariance that allows bonds to sort of act as a diversification to your equity portfolio, your credit portfolio, I think that will return to a state that's like that. But it's unlikely, um, particularly in the, in the scenario whereby the Fed is acquiescing to the higher level of inflation, 
it's very unlikely that the real returns on fixed income instruments are going to be as high as they have been in previous cycles. And so that'll likely push investors further out on the risk curve um, into equities and credit. And I do believe that there's going to be a, an allocation for things like commodities and, and physical, physical digital assets like cryptocurrency as well. I mean, the one thing we haven't talked about, and it's it's funny that two, uh, two you know, mac very thoughtful macro people have spent an hour talking. We haven't even talked about the dollar, <laughs> which is very, usually it's the number one. There's uh, been so much about. to discuss. We, we haven't, so much just to haven't discuss. got to it. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, I, I mean, you know, you think about where the dollar is um, just, just cyclically and structurally, it's at a very high level on a broad trade weighted basis. I mean, it's not to say it can't go higher and it probably will go higher until we get somewhere near the depths of this, this current economic cycle. But, you know, when you get to the other side of that, you know, you know, we've done a lot of work on, you know, some of the capital flow buildup we've seen in the U.S. economy in the last few years, particularly in this COVID environment where, um, you know, where you've seen, you know, U.S. got the vaccines first. We're very, you know, center right society. So we don't want to wear masks. We want to get back out and get the economy back going. We don't want government handouts. So those people are very comfortable taking them. Um, you know, that, that, that system, that, that sort of that condition relative to the rest of the world, which was struggling with COVID, did not do nearly as much fiscal stimulus. I think we dumped $6 trillion <laughs> into the economy in two years. Um, you know, we, we really outperformed economically. Uh, outperform from a corporate uh, microeconomic standpoint as well. If you think about corporate earnings, corporate profitability. And so a lot of money came into our economy and capitalized our growth, our ex excess growth. There's, by our counts, roughly $7 trillion of capital in the last couple of years has flowed into the U.S. economy. Um, and that's really been a big, uh, sort of dollars been a big benefactor of that, of that flow. Um, if we get to a situation let's call it, I don't know if it's three months from now or probably somewhere between uh, three and six months from now where the Fed is pivoting and the Fed is content, content with its inflation fighting and is, it's now you know, pivoting to be more concerned about um, um, staving off a deeper downturn. I think there's a lot of capital that is waiting to return elsewhere. Um, you know, I don't know where it's going to go, but you know, historically speaking, whenever you're in a, a negative dollar regime, uh, you know, particularly a secular dollar bear market, it's very favorable for emerging markets relative to developed markets. It's very favorable for cyclical uh, stocks and style factors relative to defensives. And it's very favorable for commodities, both physical and digital. So, um, you know, I think, that, again, I, I'm, I'm very much against the view that we've seen the ultimate lows in risk assets in this current market cycle. But from that low, it's very likely we have a secular bull market in those three things that I, that I just outlined. So um, if you're thinking about the 60 side of your portfolios out there, or the 70 side of your portfolio is out there, those are the kind of factors you're going to want to fill in that, 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 that blank with. Darius, we're coming up on time, uh, though I think that we could do this for days. Um, I, I think that that's a great note for us to end on. But before we, uh, we take off, I'd love for you to share with uh, our audience where they can find more of your work and services, please. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Thanks again for having me, man. This is a fantastic conversation. It's been a like pleasure. Said, you do fantastic research for, you know, I'm sure if, if people are listening to this, they certainly know who you are. But I mean, I, you know, if it, if it matters to the listener, uh, I think you are, you're, you're on to something very special and great. So I appreciate uh, you having me on, particularly as your inaugural uh, guest. But uh, folks can come find me. I'm over at 42macro.com. Uh, come check out our research. Like I said, we do research for everyone. I think everyone needs to sophisticate it macro risk management process in order to, uh, at the bare minimum, not lose a, a shit ton of money, for lack of a better word, in today's you know very complex financial markets. 
Um, and certainly, um, you know, uh, I'm also pretty active on on Twitter at 42MacroDDale. Uh, you can catch me most Wednesdays on the Real Vision Daily Briefing as well. So there's a lot of ways out there. You know, what I think one thing that uh, you and I both believe in, um, you, you know, former buy-side background, myself, former institutional background, um, is just, you know, democratizing research for, for everyone. Um, I don't care who pays for our research. Uh, obviously, as a businessman, I, I, I think we want anybody to be a customer. But I, I don't mean that. I say that tongue in cheek. But what I really mean is that, you know, there used to be a time where this kind of information was confined to a prop trading desk at a, at a Wall Street or hedge fund on Wall Street. And the reality is, you know, it's not possible to consistently put up decent returns in financial markets without having this kind of breadth of information. I'm not saying we figured it all out or that we're always going to be right and, and consistently put up great returns. But I certainly believe that this is the kind of analytical rigor you need to compete for what is an increasingly scarce uh, uh, sort of, um, you know, scarce, a, a small shrinking uh, source of alpha, but more importantly, in a higher inflation world where inflation is higher and lower and the Fed, we don't know yet, but the Fed's policy response is probably not going to be as accommodative as it has been in recent decades. Data is probably going to be struggling too. Uh, I, I always pronounce my guy's name uh, wrong, but Antti and Allen, uh, who's the um, uh, head of risk, I think, at uh, AQR, uh, he has his wonderful book out. Um, what's the name of the book? Jeez. Uh, investing in a, in a low expected return world or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm botching, butchering that. But he, I, I tend to agree with a lot of his, 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 his framework, which is, you know, from today's starting point, even including the 20% drawdown we've had in stocks, or now it's probably 15 at this point, asset price valuations are very elevated relative to longer term time series in history. And so if we're not going to get the same kind of policy accommodation, or more importantly, the mix of policy accommodation might change, i.e. we get more fiscal that's more inflationary and less, less monetary, uh, that has a, incredible implications and that aren't necessarily great for, uh, for beta, for the returns from beta. So it's going to be harder to uh, put up great returns systematically as we have seen in recent decades. So you're definitely going to need a thoughtful, systematic macro process to take advantage of the opportunities when they do arise. Darius, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we're fighting the good fight out here. Uh, help, I, I really believe that we're trying to help people democratize what was you know an extremely exclusive club mm -hmm. and um yeah i'm really excited to see what we both had um thanks so much again for being on the podcast yeah god bless you my friend appreciate you having me take care